Welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast, a show brought to you by PureFlix.com. PureFlix.com, the faith, family, and fun video streaming service. Get ready for uplifting news, scripture, movie reviews, and interviews with some of your favorite actors, authors, and pastors. Let's get started. Hey, what's going on? It's Billy Hollowell, and welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast. We are going to dive right into today's show, and I want to talk to you guys about a study that I just noticed, and and don't worry, sometimes when you say study or research, people are like, ugh, this is going to be boring, but I think, I actually think you're going to find this fascinating. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about faith and how faith has manifested itself in the middle of all of this chaos, of the coronavirus chaos, the fighting, the, the fear, all the emotions that people are feeling right now from anger to fear and across the board. Now, the study doesn't get into that, but what it does get into is the reaction that young people have been having to COVID-19. And I know on, on a broad scale, we've had Greg Laurie on the show, we've had others in the show talking about how faith has really been on an upswing, that a lot of people in the middle of this chaos have actually looked to their faith. They've, they've looked to God, um, or they've at least considered God. And so we've seen some stats out there about book reading, or I'm sorry, Bible reading, rather, being increased during this time. We know that we've seen lots of people professing to become Christians and embracing the faith, people who might not have done so otherwise. And so it is interesting to look at this new study that came out. Um, it was conducted, or was commissioned, rather, by the Young America's Foundation and the Federalist, and I'm going to give you some stats. Now, this is a scientific survey of 800 high school students, 800 college students, okay? So you've got 1,600 young people, and when we talk about young people, we usually assume they're falling away from faith, they're moving away from the church, but here's what we found. 39% of the students surveyed are praying more often amid the coronavirus. So almost four in 10 young people are turning more to prayer than they were before this. And that's not the only statistic that is worth checking out. 24% of high school students and 31% of college students also reported that they're thinking about spiritual issues more often. And you can find more about this over on our blog over at insider.pureflix.com. But the point is you have a substantial number of people, one in three practically, and one in four when it comes to, to college and high school students who are actually thinking about spiritual things. They weren't thinking about them before. But that crazy factor of having almost 40% of students say that they're praying more often is pretty incredible. And this was conducted April 24th through the 27th. And so... You can read more on our blog, Just the News, which is an, an outlet that is not connected to PureFlix. They're the ones who reported on this first, and you can find we've got some links to Just the News over on the PureFlix Insider. But yeah, it's pretty incredible to see that. And so we, we flesh it out a little bit more over on insider.pureflix.com and bring you some other content that we've been covering surrounding COVID and the way that, you know, I always try to look at the positive. What is happening on the other end of things? And it really seems like there's a lot happening, right? Um, a lot of a lot of people are stepping up to the plate. A lot of businesses are stepping up to the plate. And so moving the debate aside, I think it's incredible to see young people actually feeling a connection to God in some way. That's what we want to see. So having said that, we actually have another really inspiring story for you today. I had a chance to sit down with somebody who I think you're really, really going to find fascinating. His name is Herman Mendoza, and he wrote a book. And the title of the book, I'm just going to read it because it's one of those book titles where you're like, oh my goodness, I 
want to pick this book up and read it right now. The title of Herman's book is Shifting Shadows, How a New York Drug Lord Found Freedom in the Last Place He Expected. So Herman was a New York drug lord. I mean, this is a guy who was into crime and drugs, and his entire life changed. And I'm not going to spoil the story because it's incredible, but he now goes by Pastor Mendoza. So he's a preacher, and he has an incredible story. And so with no further ado, I want to play our interview with Herman Mendoza. Hey, Herman, how's it going today? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me on. Well, welcome to the show. I've I've wanted to chat with you um, you know, things have been so crazy, and I saw your story and your book, and I thought to myself, this is an incredible story. I'm just going to read the title because I think the title sort of points to how amazing your story is. Shifting Shadows, How a New York Drug Lord Found Freedom in the Last Place He Expected. That is a book title that makes me want to pick the book up and read it. <laughs> so so good job on that. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, where where to start? Um I, I guess the place I want to start with your story, because I know where you are now, and I want to talk about that, and I want to dive into Shifting Shadows, um, and, and a lot of what we're going to talk about lends itself to that. But to begin, how did you end up in in a life of crime in that way? How did that happen for you? Uh, so my brothers were involved with uh, a cartel, Colombian cartel, and um, at the time I was married. Um, and living with my wife, and I was laid off um, from a job that I was working at. And so I was desperate for money. And I knew that they, were, they had some involvement uh, with drugs because of the uh, cars that they had, and, uh, the clothes and the jewelry and uh, the properties and so forth. And so I wasn't sort of lured to that because in my teenage years, um, I got involved uh, with small quantities of, of distribution of cocaine, but it was, you know, ounces here, grams here. And, uh, and, and then eventually, I, at that time, I got addicted to drugs. And so I was really working for these individuals when I was a teenager, uh, these drug uh, couriers, um, to really sustain my high. I wanted, you know, more drugs, you know. And so as an adult, in my early 20s, when my brother was involved in the distribution of cocaine, they were distributing over 200, 300 kilos of cocaine. And, um, and I was desperate for, for work. And unfortunately, I could not find a job at the time. Uh, and so I was presented with the opportunity, if you will, uh, to sort of work with them. And so I approached my brother and said, hey, you know, I want to get involved, but I don't want to deal with the actual distribution of the cocaine. Uh, because I know what it did to me as a teenager, you know, consuming it and being involved in that kind of environment. So I said, if I could do something else. And he said, sure, you can count some money. So I went to one of their stash houses and they were, there was $1.2 million in cash. Wow. For a 21-year-old, I was like blown away. And so I counted that money. There was also two Mac-10s there, machine guns, just in case, you know, <laughs> that to protect their 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 uh their money and their drugs and once i did that i started to get more involved uh with them and eventually started to distribute cocaine uh the very thing i said i was not going going to do and so i started distributing cocaine and that 
uh, lifestyle led me to, you know, think that I was untouchable. I was on top of the world. I had all this money, spending thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. So it changed clubbing. you. It changed. It changed it who you were. Interesting. It did. It, it changed my whole perspective in how I viewed narcotics. I, I saw it in a way that this is a way to get rich quick. You know, and, and, and we were in a different kind of level. So I wasn't actually on a street corner selling drugs. I was actually, I had, you know, an office and I had workers and I had this whole organization. Uh, so, you know, I thought that, hey, you know, this is an easy way to make money and to get rich. And millions of dollars were going through our hands. Uh, and I was, you know, hanging out in different areas in clubs where you had celebrities there and they had no idea what we were involved in. They thought we were some kind of, you know, entrepreneurs working in the construction business. And eventually I got arrested. I got arrested with 31 kilos of cocaine uh, in my car in, in the trunk. I was heading to visit a client and uh, apparently the uh, task force, a drug task force, they were following us and they apprehended us. And the very next day, I pick up a newspaper, blasted across the headlines of the paper, uh, stated two brothers uh, uh, arrested for a total of $3.1 million of cocaine uh, facing life in prison. And at the time, Richard Brown was the prosecutor, um, U.S. District, uh, uh, District Attorney of New York. And it said on this particular article that we were facing life in prison. What went through and, your mind um, when you saw that? Because I would imagine you were riding high, you thought you were untouchable. Suddenly you're touchable. You, <laughs> you've been caught, and now you're seeing a newspaper, a newspaper article saying that you could go to prison for life. What, what goes through your mind in that moment? I, my mind was racing. My heart was like in my throat. Um, it really struck a chord with me because the reality of what I was involved in hit home. I was facing 25 years uh, to life. And at the time I had uh, my uh, one child and I was even, I was thinking about my child, you know, what's going to be of my daughter at the time. And my parents were obviously distraught. They found out what we were involved in um, and facing now life in prison. So it was very difficult uh, during those, those years, uh, though, you know, during that time. And so my attorney, uh, worked uh, out a plea uh, deal with the prosecutor and got me three to nine years of incarceration due to the fact that during the 80s and 90s, there were so many drugs being spewed out into America, into our society, to our streets, that they created a program for first offenders where they'll shave off your time uh, if you got caught only with drugs, no um, guns or anything like that. And so... I got sentenced three to nine years and uh, this opportunity arose where I can, uh, you know, sign in for this shock program. It's called shock. And it's pretty much a uh, sort of a rehabilitation program uh, to set people straight, you know, and uh, military style. So I signed up for that. And uh, all I had to do was six months of incarceration. And my brother got four to 12 years uh, due to the fact that he had some other issues. And when I arrived to this facility, I remember going to uh, the chapel and I wasn't, again, a religious person. Uh, I was raised Catholic, but 
I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the time. So I went there to kind of bargain with God. And I said, you know, God, if you allow me the opportunity to be released from this particular program, I promise you that I would not drink alcohol for six months. Now, that is an ignorant statement <laughs> or a petition to make, you know, trying to bargain with God. You help me and, you know, I'll look out for you. You look out for me. Uh, so, because I had, an, uh, you know, uh, an alcohol, I, I, was, I was an alcoholic and I just didn't admit it at the time because I was drinking all the high liqueurs, uh, liqueurs, uh, you know, Couvoisier and Cristal and Champagne and all those things. And I, I thought I, was an, I wasn't an alcoholic. And so once I was released and I finished the program, I wanted to celebrate after those six months of sobriety. And I went to a restaurant and I came across an old acquaintance. And he was now the second in command of this particular cartel. And he said, I'm, I'm handling over a ton of cocaine. And if you want in, you let me know. And I'm dealing with my conscience and I'm dealing with, you know, uh, with my mind and my heart and kind of saying, do I get involved or don't I get involved? Because you had what's, just what's made, you had just made this commitment basically, right? You know, that you, that you were going to exactly. make this change, right? Exactly. Wow. And so, uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, a particular verse in the Bible that's found in Proverbs 26, 11, which reads, a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. I was a fool. I, I, I accepted, and I went right back into what they call in the streets, the game. I went right back into the business of distribution. And one of my uh, eldest brother, uh, second uh, eldest brother, he uh, was also involved in the sales of, of, of narcotics. It was three of us. And uh, I am the youngest of five brothers. Um, and so this particular brother uh, had some issues and he came to the United States and, and uh, was arrested and was bailed out and uh, started to work with me. Um, and he knew a client that was distributing cocaine and using a trucking system that he owned a trucking company. And he had traps, compartments within the trailer where he would house the, the, the kilos of cocaine. So we could find in him that, hey, we, you know, we have a big operation. And he said, I can sell the kilos for you for, you know, $30,000, $35,000, $40,000 a kilo if we move it out of, state of New, out of the state of New York. So we agreed. It turns out he was working for the DEA. I get arrested. Now my second rap. Wow. This is now DEA, Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, right? I get arrested. Eventually, I get bailed out. Um, I have uh, half a million dollars. And my brother stays in jail because he had a, a, a prior uh, conviction. And what takes place is that I go visit my attorneys, and they said, hey, you're facing anywhere from 18 years to life in prison. And that kind of scared me. I was like, I don't want to do 18, 25 years in prison. So I decided to jump bail. And during the six months, Oh, I wow. was on the run. So you my ran. You just got, got up and ran. You were. <laughs> yes, I got up and ran. I was miserable, depressed, drinking every single day to numb the pain. I knew that I was facing a long uh, term of incarceration. And so I didn't know what to do. Um, and so I was just chasing after things and trying to figure things out. Well, my brother that got arrested with me in the federal rap, 
he gave his life to Jesus in prison. And he prayed uh, to the Lord. And he said, Father, send my brother to the same facility that I'm at so I can share this hope with him. Because if not, they are, they are going to murder him out in, out in the streets. And one day I decided to head to, uh, to my home. And um, I lived in a, a gated community. And when I arrived there, the very next day, my wife picks up the phone set, the handset, and it was the police, the DEA, state police, local police, and they had the house surrounded. My very first reaction was to jump out the window. And uh, there was a cop there, and, and I knew that there was no escape. So I told my wife, my life is over. Mm. Open the door. So they arrested me called me to the waiting vehicle. And on the way to the prison, I told the marshals, I want you to open the door. I want to end my life because my life is not worth anything. Oh, wow. So you want you and, wanted to uh, die. I mean, in that yeah. moment, you just wanted to be done. Yes, I wanted to be done. There was, I thought that there was no other way that I would resolve this issue. I knew what I was confronting. Plus, I had, this is my second conviction, you know, my second case with drugs and, and hundreds of kilos of cocaine, conspiracy and confiscation. So um, I went to uh, uh, Allenwood uh, prison. And then from there, they uh, extradi- I waived my extradition and they sent me to the same facility my brother was located at and the same dormitory. And when he sees me, I, I, I couldn't believe he was there. And he extends his hands up in the air and he says, praise the Lord, praise God. And I look at him, I said, praise the Lord, praise God. I said, hey, man, we're in jail. What do you mean, praise God? And I didn't understand his new conversion, his new language, and his countenance was just totally different. And, and, you know, it was something different about him. And eventually, a few months later, I gave my life to the Lord. Uh, I was just, there was no other recourse. There was no other uh, way to resolve my issue. I said, I need to try God. I've tried everything else. You know, I was unfaithful to my wife. I had millions of dollars. I had all these things, but it would never satisfy me. Mm. And I went to the chapel and I was having this conversation with God. And I said, if, you know, you're for real, you know, fill this void, give me peace. And the preacher, which was a jailhouse preacher that was preaching in this chapel, um, was sort of saying the same kinds of words that I was sensing and feeling and kind of contemplating and meditating uh, and having this conversation with God. And I felt that tugging in my heart. And towards the end, he said, um, and there was a, uh, about 56 inmates in this particular chapel. And he said, there's someone here that's been chasing after things. And all those things has led him to a dead end. And he said, what you need is Jesus Christ oh, wow. to fulfill that wow. void. And I went up to the altar, I went up to the front, I extended my hand and, and I just started to cry. And I said, it's me, I'm the sinner. I, I'm, you know, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the person that, that God has been calling And I accepted the Lord and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Billy, what happened to me right after was incredible. I felt this warmth that enveloped me. I felt the presence of God. What I wanted to do was I wanted to make amends with the folks that I've hurt over the years, people close to me, my parents, my wife, my children. At, the, at that particular time, I already had three children. And 
uh, also the people that I hurt that I didn't actually see. So I felt that God was putting sort of like images before me of people that were in, you know, in, in the street corners or people that were buying narcotics. Uh, and I felt that I was responsible for that because I was spewing all these drugs across the Eastern seaboard. And I felt responsible for that. The people that had to sell their bodies or kill others just to consume that, to get that next fix. Mm. And you felt that, and, and you felt that cut- conviction in that moment, which is, which is actually really fascinating to me because that's one of the things I would imagine when you're selling drugs and you're riding high off of making the money and all that, you're not really thinking about those lives that are being destroyed as a result of the drugs. But in that moment, you're having that realization, which is incredible. Exactly. It, it, it was basically godly sorrows that leads to repentance, right? It wasn't that worldly sorrows that I had before where I would say to my wife and others, yeah, I'll, I'll change, you know, I'll, I'll make it right. You know, I won't do this again. I won't drink another, you know, bottle of whiskey or, or scotch or, you know, cognac. It wasn't like that. It was, it was a golly sorrows. It was a conviction. It was God showing me right before me the sins, you know? And, and I love uh, Romans in five, eight, uh, chapter five, verses eight and nine which says, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you know? And I realized that Jesus paid the price for my sins. You know, I was, I always say to folks when I testify that I was a walking dead man and now I'm alive, you know, in Christ. So my brother and I, God started to use us and we applied for uh, a Bible Institute um, and a, a university to learn more about the Lord. And we started to learn more about, you know, the scriptures and Old Testament, New Testament, eschatology, and all these, these teachings of the Bible. And we became the pastors of these inmates in this particular unit. And today, they carry the services each and every day there at Five North. We call it the Five North Church. And they heard about us, and there was a, a radio personality um, that was on the radio in WMCA. And we wrote him a letter and he heard about us. We said, we need a mentor. We want you to be our mentor. And he supported us, uh, the American Bible Society, other churches around the community. They sent us Bibles. And we had uh, deacons that, that were inmates that would give Bibles out to the new inmates that would come into our dorm. And they would say, welcome to Five North. If you need uh, anything, we're in the back. We have church services. Jesus loves you. Here's a, a, a pair of slippers. Here's some food. Welcome to the house of the Lord. That's the kind of evangelism that was breaking out in this particular unit. Wow. Uh, so then I, I fasted for three days because my wife had left me. And on the third day, she came to visit me. And uh, she had bad news for me. She said, I have bad news to share with you. And I said, I said, before you share the bad news, I have good news to share with you. And I, I just poured out my heart to her. I shared with her about the love of Christ. I asked for forgiveness. And she started to, to cry and weep. And, and we started to confess our sins to one another. You know, the Bible says that the fervent prayer of it much, you know, that God brings healing into a situation where there's prayer and there's forgiveness. And so she confessed of the things that she has done in the past while I was incarcerated. Uh, being unfaithful. And I confess about my infidelity. And 
we made amends and, and, and we came together uh, and we reconciled our marriage and prayed for one another. And she accepted Christ. She said, I want what you oh, have. Wow. You are more free in prison than I am out in society. And she says, I see such a peace in you. And she accepted the Lord in her heart that day. And the very next uh, week, she was uh, baptized in water. Um, then eventually, my, my sentencing came. And uh, I was facing uh, 9 to 11 years now, uh, after many years in prison, waiting for the outcome of my case. And once I uh, exited the, uh, to, uh, to the courtroom, the prosecutor gave his, uh, his, disposi- uh, his uh, deposition and uh, presented the case. And in his monologue of presentation, he said, Your Honor, towards the end, uh, whatever time you impose on this uh, defendant, I hope that he continues to do the things that he was doing in prison uh, out in society. And those, some of the things that I was doing, I was helping those that were illiterate uh, to learn how to read and write and also uh, in their spiritual walk with God. So the judge eventually sentenced me. He asked me, you have any last words? I said, Your Honor, the man that you see here today is a new man. You know, I'm a Christian. If you give me this opportunity, I want to help others out of society. And he says, that's all you have to say. I said, yes, Your Honor. And he gave me 48 months of incarceration. It was a miracle in itself. Wow. Uh, from, from there, I was sent to another prison, uh, Lewisburg Penitentiary, then to uh, Allenwood. And I'm, I'm about to get released. God is using me in the prison to preach to the inmates. And the, the chaplains there would uh, contact me within the prison to preach to the inmates. And the day came of my release, and who picks me up? The New York State parole officers. They said, you're going to Rikers Island. You're facing three years of incarceration because you violated your parole conditions. And I didn't complain to God. I said, Lord, use me at Rikers Island, the notorious jail, and use me there. God sends me there. The judge looks at my case and gives me what they call revoke and restore. They put me back uh, on parole. And uh, I started an organization working with young people uh, and then eventually uh, get, uh, started a newspaper company, even though I'm not a journalist, but I started a local community paper. And that gave me some kind of uh, reputation or, or clout in the community to connect with other uh, elected officials and other leaders. And that then, they connected me with an ambassador uh, that was uh, connected to the UN. And I started to work uh, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic where my parents are from uh, to bring about solidarity and, and, and a spiritual oneness between the two countries because there's a lot of, of turmoil uh, alongside the borders. And uh, uh, due to the fact that it goes, by, it goes back to hundreds of years ago uh, where a lot of political things happen. And so that's why there's a lot of rift between the two nations. Um, so God used me there. He sends me to the UN, minister to uh, hundreds of you know uh, leaders and, and ambassadors and other distinguished guests. Um, then I become a chaplain, and I uh, the New York Mets invite me to speak to the baseball players uh, during chapel service, and which I find it, it was really cool to be able to be at chapel with them and share the gospel. Um, and, and then this is what the Lord does. He sends me to a Korean congregation, a Korean American congregation to work on behalf of children and youth for the cause 
of training uh, leaders uh, to put their emphasis on children. And this is a movement uh, dubbed a four to 14 window, which is basically to reach this window of this age group of four to 14 years of age. Um, and so the Lord sends me to this church and uh, I start traveling with them around the world to about 50 countries, training world leaders. And so you would think, uh, Billy, that God would use an ex-convict, a, a former drug dealer, uh, to go around the world uh, to share this great gospel with people, and especially young, you know, youngsters, teenagers and, and uh, children, so that then uh, I can bring hope to them. It reminds me of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know, uh, the enemy, what the enemy meant for evil, God turned it around for good. And Joseph became this you know, a great leader in all of Egypt. Uh, and what was the cause for? To save a nation. And I think that now uh, God is using me to, through his word uh, to save a nation or nations uh, through his word. Uh, before what I was doing, I was destroying nations and people. Uh, and, and this is what the Lord has done in my life. And I'm so grateful and so thankful for the opportunity. You know, when, when you look at the book, and I think it's incredible that you've written Shifting Shadows, what are you hoping in light of your story that people take away from it? Yeah, what I'm hoping is that uh, people can understand that it doesn't matter what shoes you may be in today. It, economically, perhaps an ailment, perhaps... Uh, you know, you're unemployed due to the, the, the global pandemic that we're dealing with. God is our source of refuge. If you put your trust in him, he will give you peace. He would eventually help you along the way to get through your situation. So this is a book not just targeted for, for folks that are dealing with addictions, in, in particular with narcotics. This is a book that resonates and relates to all people that are just tired of struggling with uh, personal issues, uh, emotional, uh, you know, uh, situations that has them entangled. You know, this book, I believe, can give them hope through the word of God. Because if you look at my story, Billy, my story is amazing of what God has done, transformed me. I remember uh, when I was in the fifth grade, my social studies teacher said, you're going to amount to, you know, you, you're just going to be a, a loser. You are worth, you know, nothing. You're going to jail. They're going to kill you, right? Even though some of those things happened. I went to jail and I was involved in gang, but God turned it around because I put my trust in him. You know, he found me in that place of desperation. And I think that uh, the folks that, will read the book or uh, in whatever in whatever format, or whether in paper and print or an uh, audio version, they'll get that sense that, and, and they're going to be walking with me through this journey, uh, and God will give them that uh, that strength and what they need to to be able to accomplish uh, their struggles and their goals and and, and to become a better person. Uh, for themselves and, and for their family. You know, I think it's interesting as you were saying that because I do wonder and I do think, I don't wonder, I believe this and I don't know where you stand on it, but I want to try to frame it right. But, 
you know, I think sometimes, you know, the enemy kind of knows where weak spots are in people's lives. And there are people who will speak into those weak spots to try to exacerbate them. And there are things that you'll experience that um, if you buy into them can very easily help lead you on the wrong path. Right. And and when you when you when that Mm -hmm. spiritual warfare sort of comes at you, it can really envelop people. And so it's interesting just hearing what people would say to you, you know, early on. And then you went through exactly. those things. And I almost feel like it's, I would imagine if there's a sense that you are going to be somebody who turns to God and you are going to be somebody who has that trajectory later on in your life, that that's an even more intense, um, for, and I'm just pondering here, but spiritual warfare that goes on in people's lives. And I think there are, the reason I'm saying that is I think there are people who are hearing those things in their own lives from other people and knowing that there's hope on the other side of that and that you don't have to go that way and that you can turn Exactly. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that. Exactly. No, no, I I agree. You know, the Bible talks about that, the the, the spiritual dart uh, that's found in the the book of Ephesians, you know, and and the enemy, you know, what the enemy wants to do is wants to take us out of our purpose. Yes. You see, God called us for a purpose, to be significant, you know, to, to bring about change in this world. We're not just vessels. We're not just you know, a creation that was, that was created by God just to be here on earth. We have a purpose. And we have to really uh, identify that and to understand that our identity is not found in things. It is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And once we measure that in the spiritual uh, dimension, if you will, in that spiritual aspect, as you were alluding to, uh, Billy, we can defend ourselves through Christ and not let those fiery darts take over our lives and make the wrong decision. But we can then turn to God and say, Lord, you know, I'm dealing with this addiction. Uh, perhaps I'm dealing with pornography. Perhaps I'm dealing with, you know, cigarette, with cigarettes uh, or, or alcohol. You know, Lord, I need your help in this process. And you can turn to uh, a Christian counselor. You can turn to another believer, you know, to, to pray for you. And these are moments where we definitely, we're in desperation. Uh, what's happening in our world today, we need more of God. We need more of him. And so, you know, this is what I want to kind of draw that line uh, to let people know that God will give us a way of escape. You know, uh, in the epistle of Corinthians, it talks about that. It says that God will give us a way of escape. There's no temptation that has overcome man. That's coming to man, right? God will give us a way out. So there's no excuse. And that's what keeps me sort of online uh, in, in my walk with God. Even though we're sinners, you know, we're, gonna, we're bound to make mistakes. But we turn around and we don't visit that same behavior, that same sinful uh, act that is separating us from God and God's love. And that's the way I, I see it. Well, listen, I so, so appreciate that. We're going to make sure we link out to the book. I love everything you've shared here. I think it's incredible to see somebody's story. You know, you went from literally being a drug lord to being a pastor. And that, to me, is one of the most incredible examples of what, first of all, not just what grace is, but but that there is a God and that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, because there's nothing else that changes people like that. And hearing your story just affirms that. So I appreciate Amen. you sharing it. I appreciate you writing Shifting Shadows, and I, and I wish you huge success with this book. Thank you, brother. I do appreciate your time, and thank you for allowing me this platform. Thank you. 
Did you know you can access thousands of entertaining and inspiring faith and family-friendly TV shows, movies, and original series? It's simple. Just log on to PureFlix.com right now to start your free trial. From kids' content to some of the most uplifting films, we've got your entire family covered. Sign up today! And that's all for the Pure Flix podcast. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode. And if you want more daily inspiration, head over to insider.pureflix.com. We have daily Bible verse lists, interviews, and so much more. And also head over to pureflix.com to claim your free one-week trial. And we hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of the Pure Flix podcast. That's all for today's podcast. You can follow PureFlix on Facebook at facebook.com slash PureFlix and on Twitter at PureFlix. And be sure to log on today to pureflix.com for thousands of faith and family-friendly movies and TV shows. Thanks for listening to the PureFlix podcast.